Okay. <clears throat> Let's pray, and then I'll try to give you um, kind of catch up a little bit from last week, and then um, meander some more. <clears throat> Father in heaven, thank you for the day and your goodness to us, wonderful faithfulness to us, and we thank you that we are in a place, a country, where we can gather here and we can study your, not only your word, but your, the history of your works down through history, down through centuries, and how in the world you preserved your truth in spite of all that could have overthrown it. So we thank you that we're here, and we pray that you would bless our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, <clears throat> last week, I think we ended, well, I think we ended with two things, if I remember right. Um, we looked at the first bishop of Rome that could have been called Pope, and this is the first time it's used, and it signals the rise of the papacy was a guy named Leo, and that was in the 450s. Um, and then we also looked at the beginning of the widening gap between what is today Roman Catholic Church, out of which Protestants came, and Eastern Orthodox Church. And we looked at some of the differences that were underlying that gradual um, separation. We'll touch on some of that, but like I told you last week, part of the difficulty with all this is you've got 500 things going on at the same time, and you kind of have to follow one um, stream for a while, and then kind of come back and jump onto another one and follow it, and hopefully be able to tie all of them together, okay? But um, <clears throat> at any rate, we also talked about the continuing disintegration of the Roman Empire and when it, it wasn't a cataclysmic, you know, um, crash. They were invaded four or five, six times between 100 and 500. Um, and the bulk of the people that were coming against Rome were either near Eastern Asiatic people, some of that, but most of it was coming from pretty much directly north, and you have a whole group of people, all, most of whom all came out of either Scandinavian areas or mostly Germanic tribes. Um, and it's interesting that the clash as these groups begin to explore uh, southward, the characteristics of them, and this is in the three, four, five hundreds. Okay, the Germans were, um, and we think of Germans in the sense of the country of Germany. Germanic tribes were widely across Middle and Southern Europe, okay? Um, they were not given to some of the more 
um, debauched kind of practices that the Romans got into, all kinds of, you know, homosexuality and just, they weren't as much into this, into that. But you'll believe this, okay? The Germans, um, they started out pretty animistic, they, meaning, you know, there's, there's gods in the trees and the rocks and the creek and and so they were it was you could call it a primitive religious and primitive cultural um kind of society rome would be considered much more advanced more civilized more organized so forth the germanic tribes were still pretty much um, a chieftain, not necessarily like um, American Indians, but you, you'd have a war-like chieftain. Their main thing was fighting. They spent almost all their time fighting. That's all you did. Two, drinking beer. You have any trouble believing that? Um, third, gambling and just general pillaging and, you know, um, <clears throat> I, but they weren't highly civilized in the sense of their buildings and their, um, you know, Rome even had um, piped water and a number pub, the public baths, and they, you know, they had they had some technological advances that Germanic tribes didn't at all. They were pretty primitive. Um, I can't get into all, some of it's even hard to understand, but the, the Germanic tribes began to come south for lots of different reasons. Um, but some of them came south into no man's lands that were between Germanic tribes and the northern edge of the Roman Empire, which would have been about the top edge of where Italy is today. There was a lot of just unclaimed land. Nobody settled it, nobody claimed it, nobody said it was theirs. And they began to move, begin to have interaction with um, the Romans. <clears throat> the Germans ended up, many of them, being recruited into the Roman army. And so you got into a weird situation where up uh, maybe, say, the 500s, you had Roman armies in Rome that were made up half of Germans who had gradually moved south, settled, didn't attack or invade. They just, you know, they took their flocks and their herds and they moved south, better climate, whatever. Um, and they would end up being recruited by the Romans who were disintegrating and were having trouble getting good soldiers. And these wild-eyed Germans, um, you know, they, they were nuts, but boy, they loved killing. So they would end up recruiting them into the Roman Empire, Roman army. Now, when there were intentional, concerted um, invasions from those northern Germanic tribes, you had then Germanic tribes invading and being met with mostly Germanic tribes in the Roman army to fight against them. Now, um, <clears throat> you've heard of the Vandals. Um, Here's a real tr a trivia for you. Um, the, you hear, have you heard of the Visigoths? Have you heard of the Ostrogoths? Okay, this is, now here's trivial pursuit stuff. 
Um, the Goths were another Germanic tribe. Now, is anybody bright enough here who knows that what a Visigoth is and what an Ostrogoth is? Genius type people, the only people that you know could. <laughs> um, it's really hard to track. Ost, uh, Ostra means east, and this or Visa is west. Okay, so. But these Germanic tribes, the Ostrogoths attacked Rome over near Turkey where Constantinople, the new Rome was, and the Visigoths came down through Spain, what's today Spain, France, and came at Italy from the west, really. Now the Visigoths, were, they were worse as far as inflicting damage on Rome. The Vandals were also Germanic. Some were um, even further north, Scandinavian tribes. Um, the Vandals came out of the same area. The Vandals, as early as the 400s, came down, attacked Rome. Um, Pope Leo, because the Roman Empire, Roman Emperor, was, he fled the city, was not around. So Leo, the head of the church, goes out and negotiates. Um, you can plunder a little bit, but please don't really tear the place up. So he agreed to it. <clears throat> so yeah, he plundered for 14 days. Um, but then they left. But what they ended up doing is going west to Spain, the Visigoths. They came down, messed with Rome, go west. They came over Gibraltar and then swept all the way across the northern fringe of North Africa. Um, and I remember a couple of weeks ago I told you about uh, St. Augustine. Uh, he was near Carthage in North Africa. Um, he was about, I think he was, well, he died in 430. I think in about 410 or so um, was the first invasion of the Vandals. Um, Augustine was 56 years old. Um, then the Visigoths take the same route 20 years later and lay siege to Carthage, the great city of North Africa. And he dies while that siege is going on and then they take the city in 431. Augustine died in 430, okay? Um, now, they go back and in 450, they're at Rome again, and Leo goes out and negotiates a second time. Please give us a break. They tore the place up a little worse, but still didn't just um, lay Rome flat, okay? Now, <clears throat> um, the strange thing that began to happen, as these people swept south, they encountered not only to them, a more sophisticated, civilized society, the Romans, their whole form of government, and so forth. But they also encountered Christians, even in the army. By then, there were a number of Christians in the Roman army. And then, of course, there were 
the mona uh, monastic movement, the monasteries had already started, and a lot of the monasteries were given to missionary activity. So as these Germanic tribes began to move south, regardless of their reason, one just to get better pasture and whatever else, others to invade, they encountered Christianity. So the church, primarily um, the headquarters in Rome, began to recruit uh, monks to go into these lands and um, evangelize. <clears throat> now I can't remember. There's one. Um, I think there was a there was a guy named uh, Wilford or something like that um, who was a monk and he goes up into some of the dark German um, areas and his <clears throat> he comes into. Um, a particular German tribe that inhabited a large area, but a deep um, forest was part of their a Bavarian forest, I think. Well, they, they worshipped um, a massive... Now, who knows if this really happened, but this is the story, and it's preserved as a true story. He knew that this, this monk and most of them felt like the only way they could invade these lands and invade and get them to forsake their religion is to show that the Christian God, of course, was stronger than their gods who inhabited the trees and rocks and all that. Well, this particular tribe worshipped a massive oak tree. Okay, That's where they held their gatherings and they believed, being animus, they believed that there was a god that inhabited that. Well, supposedly, this monk goes in and, you know, encounters this tribe, and he gets in on some festival where they're worshiping this massive oak. And he gets it in his head. He says God spoke to him. And so he got an axe, and he went, at the business of chopping the thing down. Well, supposedly, he took one stroke with the axe, you know, one good lick at it, and getting ready to do the second one, a massive wind just came from nowhere and knocked the whole tree down. Now, I don't know if that happened or not. It could have. But that supposedly, um, you know, so shocked and convinced this particular tribe, that this Christian God was stronger than their gods, that that was the inroads, that was the inroad that that particular band of monks had to evangelize that group. Um, <clears throat> the three, there were, there were basically, um, you could say maybe three not only groups, but time periods. From the 380s, clear up through the 800s. Now, that's a long time. But the 380s up to the 800s, the Northern Europeans, which were these uh, Germanic tribes and on up uh, to even the Scandinavians, um, were, during that whole period, they were evangelized, brought to Christianity. Um, France in the 500s, what, what today was, it was Gaul then, um, were evangelized in around the 500s. Um, from the early 400s, clear into the 600s, 
the Irish and the and British, the British Isles. Um, St. Patrick, everybody's heard of St. Patrick, green beer and all that. And St. Patrick was supposed to, supposedly the, the missionary that brought uh, Christianity to Ireland and then throughout the British Isles. One of the interesting things that um, also was the case, remember, I hope you remember, um, remember when we studied Arius and the Arian heresy? That Jesus was the highest creation, but he wasn't God? Um, okay, Arianism um, still was alive on the northern fringe of the Roman Empire among Christians. Arianism got pretty, got a pretty good foothold. So a lot of these Germanic tribes, when they converted to Christianity, it was Arianism, which is a heresy. Okay, they didn't make you know they didn't worry too much about that. Um, the missionaries kind of didn't know what to do with them. Because you're, you're, you're taking total pagans who are animus, which is about the lowest religion that you can think of as far as, you know, gods that live in trees and rocks and the rock is a god and so forth. Um, so there was something called syncretism, okay? Uh, S-Y-N. You synthesize <clears throat> and you adopt you leave alone some pagan practices and pagan beliefs and you just um, kind of make them over and let them be somewhat Christian. Okay, now much further later, but it started clear back then, you have all kinds of syncretism going on in the quote, evangelizing of the pagans. Um, well, a, a, an easy one, and I don't want to get off into this whole deal, but um, a, a good recent illustration is Halloween. Okay, Halloween was originally a Druid holiday, um, 31st and of October, and it had to do with the you know coming of fall and then the winter, but it was about uh, animus, animism and it was demonic um, and so fear that the gods would be unhappy with them there was great fear just general population as they headed into the darkness of the winter and cold and um, plagues and so forth um, and so they would offer prayers and religious sacrifices to all the gods that would they in in an attempt to appease them to help them get through the winter and to give them crops and so forth in the spring okay and what you would do the druids would set a full meal out didn't matter how poor they were or whatever else in their hut or wherever they lived they would put out a full meal the best they could prepare for these um, gods who were angry with them. And then they would go to bed, and the assumption was that the gods would come and eat that great meal, would be well-intentioned toward them, and that would secure safety through the darkness of the winter 
and planting and crops the next spring, okay? So that's where, if they weren't happy with the meal, then, you know, the kids all died of whooping cough or something happened to you, okay? So that's where we get, in Halloween, the notion of trick-or-treat. Um, that's, that's a druid. Now, that's why some people, you know, and I'm, I am not going to be a great defender of the Halloween for itself. Um, maybe that's, if I can become, you know, convinced that it, it's an evil thing for little kids to come to the front door and bug me while I'm trying to watch, in this case, the Braves um, in the World Series, okay? Um, anyway, that's one example of a million cases of syncretism where you let, you didn't try to dislodge from the pagan heart and mind their old attachments to these gods. You just tried to leave the um, outer shell but replace it with a Christian core. Okay, um, that's one example. We have, I think, let's see, I know uh, Sunday, Wednesday, and Thursday are all names brought over from uh, Roman slash Germanic pagan worship that got into our calendar. Okay, so syncretism takes the edge off of what might have been meant by conversion. You understand what I mean? So the idea is that these, these Christian monks went north. Unfortunately, we can't say they were thoroughgoing um, converts when they, quote, believed. A second thing about the, con quote, conversions were virtually none of them were individual. They were mass conversions. When the, the war, warrior slash chieftain of the tribe converted, or the king of some little province or whatever converted, all the subjects converted. Okay? So, now, it took centuries for the Christian teaching to clearly seep in, did get into individual hearts, did um, transform the culture, but it didn't happen um, with these initial contacts. Um, let me give you one illustration. This was up in the, uh, I think, Denmark, some pr way north. There was a king, and this would have been in as late as uh, 700s, or, or maybe even 800s. His name was Harold, okay? <clears throat> well, Harold, you know, held to the old kind of religions, didn't buy into this new thing he'd never heard of, these Christians. Um, and in this case, there was um, an army along with, armies began to accompany the missionaries, okay? Um, well, Harold was, he didn't really want to respond, <laughs> you know, let's put it this way, in today's, except half, sad, sadly, this will date me. Um, 
you know, Harold heard about 10 verses of Just As I Am and still didn't go to the altar. You know, he still didn't respond to the invitation. So they got a funnel. They got a poisonous snake. They put the funnel in Harold's mouth and started forcing the poisonous snake down the ton a funnel and into his throat. And Harold responded to the invitation. <laughs> he signed the little card that he believed in Jesus Christ as Savior. Um, you can't hardly call, and, and the whole province or kingdom, whatever, how large it was, converted. Well, you understand you can't count that as genuine conversion. It did, though, uh, move towards the elimination, at least, of the outward rituals that went with the old paganism and the continued presence of uh, monks, they would build monasteries, they'd stay, and they started teaching scripture, and, and a lot of them were illiterate. They taught them how to read and so forth. Still had a leavening effect that ended up turning them more genuine Christian, but um, it was not immediate, okay? Um, now, <clears throat> couple places I got to kind of jump around here a little bit. Um, let me see if there's anything more I need to mention here. Um, well, the, the, the best of the missionary efforts to transform Europe um, came to fruit by the end of, by about 800 A.D. And 800 A.D., how many of us, how many of us will say this, have heard of but don't know a thing about Charlemagne? Everybody heard, most everybody heard of Charlemagne. We don't know much about him, most of us, but we've at least heard it. Um, Charlemagne was um, crowned by this point. He was crowned the first emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. Not the Roman Empire, but Holy Roman Empire. The Pope is who coronated him and made him the emperor of the Holy Roman emperor, uh, Empire, which was, w w they, they were the Christianized lands um, that had previously been in just the Roman Empire, um, but now they were considered Christianized, so it was the Holy Roman um, emperor. I think, don't quote me here, I think the Holy Roman Empire and the, the, at least the, you know, on paper and in name only, went clear up into the early 1800s in Europe. Um, but at any rate, Charlemagne was the first one. Um, in 800. It ends up that Europe then became the Christian center of the globe. Um, long abandoning um, the Mediterranean and you know the the southern part so that Europe became the heart of what was to become Western civilization and Western 
Christianity, which by then, well into, um, you know, the end of the first thousand years, but here we are at post 2,000 years um, of Western civilization, which is clearly built on Western Christianity, okay? Now, um, <clears throat> I think we got to kind of back up a little bit because we're already a, we're already up to the date I mentioned, the 800s. Okay, go clear back now. Go clear back to um, 630s. Okay. Something happens here that was to radically affect both the Western Church, the Latin Church, and the Eastern Church, Eastern Orthodoxy. Okay? And that was the rise of Islam. Okay? This is huge. Um, Muhammad, um, can't remember if he was born in 632 or that's when he started his whatever they've been causing trouble ever since but um, at any rate <coughs> Muhammad I can't remember exactly because I didn't go I didn't go back and look at it um, he started having visions um, what I, I don't know what was really wrong with him, except I honestly do believe, and I'm not even though you might think I'm just being sarcastic, I think he was demon-possessed. He had seizures, trances. He, was, he would, yes, he would have some um, uh, symptoms that you could maybe say were, you know, like epileptic symptoms, but... Um, he saw all these visions, and then he would be exhausted for days after these. Um, and he'd be off in the desert or somewhere. And he wrote those visions down and had disciples around him, and they would write them down. That is the Quran. Okay? It's these visions and the truth he believes were revealed to him. Now, <clears throat> he was a rabid he was rabidly monotheistic, okay? He, most of his energy in the Arabian Peninsula was uh, directed at stamping out um, idolatry, polytheistic, as everybody generally was, except for there were only two groups, um, Christians and Jews, that were monotheistic, well, um, all of these revelations that he had about Muhammad that he wrote down, and fundamentally he believed, he, he believed that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, most of the Old Testament prophets leading up to Jesus were wonderful people. He accepted their writings, so much of the Old Testament. Um, Jesus was a great prophet, uh, according to Muhammad, but he wasn't the greatest. Muhammad was, okay? Um, he was sort of the capstone uh, 
of God's revelation to the world. So <clears throat> he approached Judaism and Christianity, of course, had spread through the Arabian area, so he didn't have to hunt hard to find Christians and Jews. He felt like they would join forces with him because they were also monotheistic. They believed in one God and that they would help him, throw in with him, in doing their best to abolish idolatry. Um, they rejected him because he rejected um, well, he had a new God, Allah, um, rejected um, Jehovah of the Old Testament, rejected Christ for the Christians, of course. They weren't going to have anything to do with him. He, that really embittered him. He then began attacking. There's, there's Medina um, in uh, the Arabian Peninsula. He began attacking um, his own people trying to stamp, stamp out idolatry. He attacked carav caravans and so forth. Um, he ended up basically bringing his culture in um, Arabia um, under his control, okay? Um, set up um, Mecca and all that stuff and established the religion of Islam. Now, um, by shortly after, still in the mid-600s, their first uh, breaking out of Arabia was north. They went up through Palestine, Syria, and so forth. So they went up the um, eastern shore of the Mediterranean. That wiped out, that took over all of the holy places in Jerusalem, all of the places that the patriarchs of Israel lived, Jacob's well, you know, everything, okay? Um, <clears throat> and that all fell into their, their hands as early as the late 600s, real early 700s. Um, then they also swept along North Africa. Now, North Africa, uh, through Egypt, and North Africa, that was heavy Christian, Roman Christian. When they went through Palestine and Syria, they were going after Eastern Orthodox Christians, okay? That really cut into, that was the core, kind of the main line of Eastern Orthodox, okay? So that really, that it in the end, I think it hurt Eastern Orthodox worse than it did uh, Roman Catholicism, but it hurt them both. Then, he, then they go across Carthage, or across North, taking Carthage and so forth, across North Africa. That was Rome Christianity, okay? That was Western Christianity. Um, they obliterated the church there, Christian church, which was very strong. I mean, that was a good, strong, deep-rooted Christianity that was wiped out they ended up then going over <clears throat> at Gibraltar and attempted to go up through Spain and France and I never can pronounce French words um, you know they got 35 letters 32 of which are silent 
you know what I mean? And so it's, it's just your name is Bob or whatever. Um, so it's either Tours or whatever. That could be Bob, even those T-O-U-R-S, okay? They got as far as Tours or whatever you call it in 732. So they just absolutely at a gallop took over all of the northern or the southern edge of the Mediterranean, went over the Straits of Gibraltar, started up taking the northern edge in France, which is out west. They also had gone up really almost equal with what's today Turkey along the eastern uh, edge of the Mediterranean. Over the next couple of, of centuries, they continued that push. They didn't really get um, a lot farther than France, but they did make ground here uh, over in the eastern end of the Mediterranean. They ended up taking Turkey to Constantinople, um, which was the new Rome, <coughs> and went up um, over the Greek peninsula and so forth. One of the things that um, it was always confusing um, during Clinton's presidency was the war in Bosnia, uh, Herzegovina, okay? Well, the weird thing there is the three or three religions all came to, that, that was where three groups, high watermark if you want to call it, and they all were still living there, okay? Um, it was Islam, Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy. All three of those churches and those movements kind of clashed there and they're still there. They would fight over stuff that went on in the 800s. Somebody slighted somebody back in the 800s and we ain't gonna forget it. And anyway, um, so that was Islam's, at least around the Mediterranean and in pre, uh, previously Christianized area, that was where <clears throat> um, kind of their high water mark was at the time, okay? Now, they made it into Spain and France in the 700s. It wasn't until 1492 um, in Spain and Portugal that they threw them out. The Spanish Moors, if you've ever heard that term. Um, so they managed to hold on to at least that portion of their conquered lands for seven, eight hundred years. Um, of course, we know what Islam, how it's, it has spread different places in the meantime. Now, <coughs> um, let's see here. Probably to um, sum that up a bit, um, maybe that's good enough. Um, 
they tried, they tried several times to actually take over Constantinople, but they failed. Um, but then, here's, here, let me jump way ahead, and then we'll get back, then we'll backtrack again. What happened in the sixes and the sevens then prompted as much as, well, it'd be 500 years, 600 years later, the Crusades. The Crusades were when um, Roman Christianity got strong enough and had all of Europe, the British Isles, and so forth. Um, then they mounted all these different Crusades efforts to regain the Holy Land from what they called then the Turks. Okay. Um, you go clear up in the 1700s. In 1700 England, John Wesley, a lot of everybody, but, but letters they would write. One of the worst things you could do was label someone as you're no better than a Turk. Okay. Well, they weren't talking about Turkish. They were talking about an, a Muslim. I mean, you'd put a, listen, the, the Protestants um, in Europe and especially um, England, the Protestants could get along great with the Pope before they could ever put up with a Muslim. Um, and so even in Luther's day in the 1500s, the then Holy Roman Emperor in Germany by the name of Charles V, one of the reasons he wanted to get rid of Luther, burn him at the stake and get rid of his divisiveness was they were still feeling, Germany was still feeling threatened from the um, Spanish, French areas and Muslim armies and they said, if we don't get our act together, get rid of, of Luther, who's wrecking everything, and cohese together as a Roman church and quit this divisiveness, the Turks are going to get us. And so one of his pleas to burn him at the stake and get it over with is we're, we're dividing ourselves up, and the Turks are going to attack us, and, and we're weak enough because we're bickering that we'll be taken over by them. Um, this is the 1500s. They were still a threat. That's now, um, you know, that's at least eight, nine hundred years after the start um, of Islam. Now, if you're thoroughly confused, <clears throat> um, let's go back then. We'll go clear, clear back to 590. Okay. Now, if you don't ever come back again, I don't blame you. Um, but there's all, meanwhile, back at the ranch is kind of what goes on with history in, in general. Um, but if we go back to 590, what's particular about 590? Uh, <clears throat> well, you have the first true, if you want to call him great, because he's now called great, Gregory the Great. Um, I told you that in the 450s, the first guy that sort of started using the word pope 
um, for over the church was Leo. And they went through several, you know, other ones. And it, now we're looking at about 150 years later. <clears throat> um, by now, Rome had completely collapsed as an empire in that 150 years after Leo. Um, the Pope, they were, none of them were as strong as Gregory the Great, the Great, but they were the only recognized. Here's what happened, really. The, the Roman Empire, which was the great, greatest empire in that whole Mediterranean, lower European area, it kept the peace. You have the Roman road system. You have a lot of good that Rome brought. Government system, laws, the whole thing. Um, it disintegrated. There was no institution but the church. Big enough, powerful enough, organized enough, widespread enough to rush into that vacuum. Okay? So you have a vacuum of power, and the church was the only thing left standing. And so it it easily, you can see why the church assumed the position now, not only of spiritual leadership, but civil leadership. And the Pope was only too happy to wear both hats. Okay? Um, by the time then that um, you are, were introduced to Gregory, um, there, there was the kind of consolidating of power and, and there's where some bad doctrine in Christianity, uh, typifying Roman Catholicism, came together and seemed to pick up speed. Okay? Um, real quick, <clears throat> I don't know if you want to write this down so that you can commit it to memory, but um, Gregory, born in 540, lived to 604. Um, he was from a wealthy senator family in the Romans. Um, he was educated for a career in public administration, was considered a masterful administrator. Um, he, was also, he was also converted. He became a Christian, and he became probably a little fanatically pious. Okay? Um, but nevertheless... By the time he was 33, the emperor, weak as water, but he was still by name the emperor, over in Constantinople, named him mayor of Rome. Okay, he was very good administrator and so forth. Um, he did that for five years, um, and then he quit because he felt like he wanted to go full-time monk, okay? So his father had some palace. He had a great estate and all this. That he, all, he inherited all that. Um, what he ended up doing was he took that great palace, he turned it into, into a monastery. He, got, he sold, um, other than that building, he sold the vast land holdings and so forth that his um, father had and gave it all away save some of it to support the monastery, but it basically um, disinvested, you know, divested himself of all his riches. And then um, <clears throat> lived the life of a monk himself. Okay, so he quit, he got out of the state, 
government. And then he ended up um, living as a monk himself. He, um, well, he started eating a diet of nothing but fruits and vegetables. So we know he was, he was nuts. You know, anybody that would eat that healthy has to be uh, nuts. But anyway, um, in the course of it, and, and also, he, he was heavy into, uh, you know, asceticism where he punished his body. He would usually pray all night or nearly all night. He'd try to get himself down to just a few hours of sleep. Um, and he wore, you've, you've heard the statement of uh, people wearing a hair shirt. He would wear a hair shirt, which was a, you know, a, a woolly or some kind of stick, stickery fabric and you turn it inside out and that you wear that against your bare skin. It's like wearing a wool sweater with, with no t-shirt, okay? Um, that punished yourself. That made you more godly. And so he'd wear a hair shirt. He just ate minuscule, minuscule amounts of food and that, just fruit and vegetables, and didn't give himself much sleep. So he essentially um, kind of wrecked his, wrecked his health. Um, but... By this time, it's seven or it's 579. Well, the current pope, who I can't remember, um, in fact, I think his name may have been Pelagius, was the pope then. Um, he named Gregory um, ambassador from the church in Rome to the um, church and emperor in Constantinople. Remember the long centuries of uh, rivalry between Rome after Constantine moved the capital over to what's today Istanbul um, and tried to elevate it above Rome. That's what brought out the doctrine that Peter and Paul started Roman church. They're buried there. That makes them preeminent, not Constantinople. Okay? Um, they were still, they fought that over a couple of centuries. Anyway, the Roman Church sends Pope, or the Pope sends Gregory to Constantinople to be, um, you know, representative from Rome. Um, <clears throat> he goes there. He's only there about five years. 585, he comes back to that monastery that he founded, and he became abbot of the monastery. That's the, the spiritual leader of that monastery he started in his dad's um, palace. Okay? <clears throat> then <clears throat> in 590, no one knows the estimate, but it's tens and tens and tens of thousands of people died in Rome in 590 in one of those black plague deals, bubonic plague or whatever. Um, even the Pope died. Well, um, the people then, when the plague kind of died out, the people wanted Gregory to assume the position of Pope because the Pope was dead. Gregory ran off and hid in the woods, okay? I don't know how long he was there, but they hunted all over the place and they finally found him and they literally you tied him up apparently and, you know, hauled him back to Rome and made him be Pope, okay? Um, they elected him Pope. Um, so <clears throat> he ended up then... Um, becoming Pope in 590. Now, um, 
because of he was a tremendous organizer and administrator, here are things, and then we'll probably quit here. Um, here's some of the things he did. One, he organized, again, he's now head, both spiritually and civically, because there's nobody else. He reorganized the whole Roman government in that area around there, reestablished courts and the whole thing. Um, they ended up um, owning the Catholic Church, even by that time, was one of the biggest landowners in Italy. You know, if you can envision Italy, you got the heel and you got the toe, and you got Rome partway up, you know, on the shin somewhere. They owned almost the whole bottom of the boot. Um, and so they had very extensive land holdings and so forth. To his credit, he never enriched himself. And during the plagues that continued waves of the plagues, he ended up using those lands um, for crops and so forth, but established a huge welfare system for everybody. I mean, not just Christians, but just the um, civilians, especially Christians, but civilians of Rome. Um, and the surrounding area. Um, and so he did his best to, you know, to take care um, of the citizens. In the middle of all, all that, you ever heard of the Lombards? Okay, they, they invaded Italy and stirred up a bunch of problems and killed a bunch of people and added to the anguish that was going on. Um, but at any rate, um, another thing, probably a second or third thing. He always, Gregory was always fighting with the patriarch of Constantinople over who was preeminent, even though it had been pretty well established that um, the Bishop of Rome was preeminent over the church. Uh, they, you know, they would try to excommunicate each other and hold councils where they didn't invite the other one, and that kind of stuff, okay? Kind of, sort of junior high stuff. Um, he was a major sponsor of missions organizations and missions endeavors up into the north. Um, he's called the defender of orthodoxy, I'm not really sure. He, yeah, I guess to a point. He fought against Arianism, which was still in the outlying areas of Christian um, Roman Empire, but he, he, he helped forward a number of doctrines that... Um, weren't so good. He also, um, I think he sort of turned a blind eye, blind eye to syncretism, the um, commingling of paganism and Christianity as a smoother way to get pagans to renounce paganism and uh, embrace Christianity. Okay, so that that's not so good. Um, <clears throat> let's see here. This, I think we can get finished. Here were a number, and I will have to go sort of quickly here. Here are the number of the doctrines that kind of got solidified, got a, um, what, wider acceptance under Pope Gregory. By the way, Pope Gregory is the one that finally settled the Christmas thing, Christmas bickering, and said it's December 25th. So Christianity bickered over the birth date of Jesus, which we don't know, and the Bible doesn't tell us, till um, 60-something, okay? 604, he redid the calendar that we have 
and it, or tinkered with it at least, and that's the calendar we um, use today. But um, <clears throat> baptism is where you are forgiven of your sins, okay? That doesn't seem to be a big deal. But baptism um, was the free grace of forgiveness is at baptism. And of course, by then, they were not only baptizing new converts as adults from these northern tribes, um, but of course, um, infant baptism was heavily practiced from day one of the church. And so you have a huge number of people that were baptized as infants. Um, that gave them forgiveness, but um, the, the issue, a third doctrine, was post-baptismal sin. What do you do for sins committed after you've been baptized, whether you were baptized as an adult or as a child or whatever the deal is? Any post-baptismal sin, remember I told you clear back in the 100s and 200s, there were strong positions, incorrect, but strong positions, there, there's no forgiveness for post-baptismal sin, which is absurd. Um, then, the, the group that said, no, there is forgiveness, some were really generous and said, one. The other part of the forgiveness bunch said, 70 times seven. Um, Post-baptismal sins are all forgivable, okay? That shouldn't have been an issue, but still here in 590, it still was. What do you do with post-baptismal? Well, in the meantime, they've gotten rid of the notion there's no forgiveness. However, this is what you have to do. For post-baptismal sins, they are only remitted, not by the blood of Jesus and repentance. I don't know what they were reading, but it's, they're remitted by penance. And the penance is either... Um, you know, you can kind of do some stuff yourself to, to you know, um, beat on yourself, and that'll go a long ways towards having it forgiven. But then God imposes it, and of course God imposes penance through the church and through the priest, okay? So, um, for all post-baptismal sin, um, <clears throat> you had to go to the priest, and they would prescribe, depending on what you did, so many Hail Marys, so many, you know, wearing a hair shirt, taking a pilgrimage someplace, giving, you know, your last cow to the church or do whatever. So penance became a huge issue um, and more and more established as the way to remit all sins after um, your baptism, okay? Now, they also discovered during Gregory, it, this Gregory didn't originate anything, but he kind of uh, confirmed stuff that had been taught and half believed and whatever for a while, and it became settled. Okay, the saints can help you with penance. Um, you can wear a hair shirt, you know, you can take a, a cold bath in the lake in the dead of winter and break the ice and you, whatever. You can do your starve yourself, all kinds of stuff for penance. But you can also pray to the saints and they will shorten, help shorten the time and also help you with it. They also cooked up a deal where there was some monk who died um, 
in Roman area, Rome area. Some monk died, and they, he went to purgatory because everybody goes to purgatory. And he was doing penance, and they all knew, because they had visions in the night, that I think his name was John. John was suffering, okay? And so they, all, they decided that if they would do a mass dedicated to John for 30 days every single day in the monastery, they would have a mass dedicated to him that he would, he would get out of purgatory quicker. And so they did a mass for 30 days, and then someone on the 31st day in the monastery had a vision. John appeared, spoke to them, and said, you know, um, free at last, free at last. You know, I'm out. I'm out of purgatory. Um, and so that cemented that doctrine that the saints can, you can pray to the saints and do masses dedicated um, to the person you want to get out and the saints will help get them out of purgatory quicker, okay? Other stuff was, of course, added to that. Given money will get them out quicker and so forth. Um, let's see here. Also, um, if you go worship relics, the rise of relics was already going, but it reached its height here. Um, and, of course, this is in the 600s. Almost, almost, a th well, 900 years later, Martin Luther made the statement that there are, we said, why right here in Germany we have the graves of 18 of the original 12 apostles. Okay? Um, relics just became, I mean, literally, thumbnails an actual, they're boxcar loads somewhere today of the original, one of the original nails of the cross. Um, those were everywhere. And they would literally, I'm not making it up, they'd have a, a, f a fingernail. Well, this came from Saint so-and-so. Um, and those, those relics would run a circuit um, the, a priest or whoever, they would box them up in a glass box or something and so the people could see them. And then they would do a circuit through Campbell County. They'd go, to, they'd go everywhere from, they'd go to Wright, they'd go to, um, you know, wherever. They'd go up to Spotted Horse, they'd, you know, and, they'd, and they would, all the people would come and they would pray towards and worship that relic. Okay, and that relic had the power of that saint plus the power of the church that was kind of put on her. That would lead to healing and forgiveness of sins and all kinds of stuff. Um, purgatory got well established then. <clears throat> true, true saints, usually martyrs and, and you know, very, very saintly people go straight to heaven. The really wicked hellions go straight to hell, but the vast majority in between always go to purgatory. Those are people who are Christians, or at least they were baptized. And they will go to purgatory where, depending on what things they did um, that were unforgiven in this life, regarding not mortal sins, that sent you straight to hell. Mortal sins, you know, the seven deadly sins, they called them deadly because those, those you die without those being forgiven, you go straight to hell. But if you 
something less than that that harmed was harmful or whatever else, but it was you didn't mean it and whatever. That ends up being reserved for purgatory. You go to purgatory, you spend time there in uh, some level of torment, and that works off um, all those that are forgiven. Um, the, the, this is a, we'll never, I'll quit here in a second, even though we're not done. The communion or Eucharist, um, it game, became also established transubstantiation. Um, began to be, um, become a, a very established doctrine, Gregory the Great. Now, this is real trivia before we quit and go, and I've got four or five more doctrines. We'll worry about them next week. Uh, what's transubstantiation? Anybody? Even, you don't even have to answer it, but if you think you know, give me, okay, there's one, two, three, four, okay. Um, don't, doesn't matter. Tell us what transubstantiation is. Okay. Under the priests only, through the priests' blessing, the bread and the wine literally, actually become the true, physically, uh, biological blood and flesh of Jesus. Okay? Um, <clears throat> that was part of the bigger issue of, of papal and priestly authority over the people. You, you cannot be a Christian, you cannot go to heaven unless you regularly take the, the Eucharist. And you can't take the Eucharist. This really came into focus with Protestants or anybody that was a, a you know, a rebel. Um, if you didn't have a duly ordained Catholic priest pray the blessing over the cup and the bread, you weren't taking real communion and your, your soul is dead. You're, you can't go to heaven. So, I mean, it was a cattle chute you had to go through and they controlled the cattle chute, okay? Um, it's amazing to me to think how strong that, that hold was, but when you got up into the 12s, the 13s, the 14s, um, they had what were called interdictions. An interdiction was the Pope could say not just to a local parish, but he could say, and did, for instance, the King of England, um, Henry VIII, you cooperate on this divorce deal, and I'm not going to give it to you, and you don't, if you don't cooperate with me, I'm putting an interdiction on all of England. That meant no priest, no Catholic priest in the entire country of England, not one, could offer communion to anybody. That meant the whole of England went to hell. The Pope claimed that authority. And listen, the kings quaked under that. And he also would threaten an interdiction if you didn't raise an army to, to go to the next crusade. So it, it was just a bondage. Um, <clears throat> one of, that's one of the basic things that early reformers rebelled against was transubstantiation. Um, it does not become the actual body and blood of Christ. That's why great rituals came into being and still are. 
that um, it was only recently that the lay people could drink the cup because that's the blood of Jesus. And then if you have some left over, since we use Welch's grape juice as a symbol, you don't just go back there in the stainless steel sink and dump it down the drain. There's elaborate rituals. You don't just dump the actual blood of Jesus, which used to be wine or something, and you prayed over it and it became actual blood of Jesus himself. You don't dump that down the drain. In most cases, the priest has to drink it. Now, listen, I'm not making this up, and then we'll quit. 30 years ago, um, I can't remember the number I was told then, but scattered all across the United States are clergy-only detox centers sponsored by, run by, owned by the uh, Catholic Church for alcoholic priests. Communion is done every day. And, you know, um, I was in, I was in an Episcopal wedding, um, not Catholic, but, you know, in this case, it's Catholic light. But um, this, there's this big chalice of wine, and, you know, the bride gets a little bit in the, in the groom. And then, I th Liz, were you, yeah, she was the maid of honor, and I was the, whatever. Um, and so, we, you know, we take a sip. Well, the thing was at least a liter. <laughs> you know what I mean? We had a sip each. The, the priest, he guzzled the whole thing. So literally, it, it was a long ceremony. He is kind of thick tongue at the end of it. I'm not making it up. Um, and you do that every day. So anyway. All right, on that happy note, we'll quit. Um, and we'll finish up these doctrines. But this was where a pretty sharp turn occurred with some of the, these doctrines that got a grip on people in general. Father in heaven, dismiss us, we pray. Keep us safe as we go. Thank you for all the activities throughout the rest of the building tonight and the seed planted in hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.